Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. This episode of the podcast was recorded at the Australian Shareholders Association Sydney Conference. So if you hear people chattering or maybe even a bell or some plates and cutlery, you know what it is. It's a bit of background noise. Try to tune that out. We've done our best with editing. Hopefully one day you'll see us on the road in a city near you. Keep your eyes peeled on the RAS Media website for any updates for events that we'll be hosting in the back half of the year. But in the meantime, you can enjoy this episode and know that it was done in real life. Thanks for listening. Well, this is a special episode for me. We're recording at the Australian Shareholders Association, and I have three people with a wealth of experience across different verticals. There are some similarities here. I'm looking at you, Andrew. I'm looking at you, Dania. Uh, and Angus, thank you all for joining me here for this very special episode at the ASA conference in Sydney. Angus, I thought maybe we could start with you and... Maybe an intro to you, but also the business and what you do, uh, I guess, what's a typical day look like for you uh, managing such a large portfolio that's been going for such a long time? Yeah, so Whitefield or Whitefield Industrials has been around for 100 years now. Uh, We invest in a portfolio of uh, Australian shares. It's diversified. There are around 160 stocks and that uh, investment universe is ASX 200 Industrials which is all sectors of the market X resources. So one of the nice little tilts in there at the moment is the, um, the fact that we've got a 60% lower uh, carbon emissions intensity than the broad, uh, broad market. What does it mean to you to, have, to be in charge of a business, an investing business that's been around for 100 years? Uh, yeah, look, it's, uh, it's, I don't think the, the fact it's been around 100 years changes our mindset at all. It's more the other way around that uh, we've had a mindset for a long period of time that's really the cause of uh, longevity and durability of the investment structure. And look, uh, I was thinking hard about what uh, the contributors to that and at least one of them which is often overlooked is uh, ownership or co- co-ownership. So throughout uh, the entire 100 years, our handful of uh, chief executives and chairman as well have also all been very big investors in the uh, in the fund itself, and I think that brings with it a, not a huge alignment of interest. Management are the are shareholders, you know, they're the same as every other investor, 
And that means it's not important. It's not, we're not just thinking about three years or four years or five years. It's no good to us if we generate good returns for three years and blow it up in the fourth or fifth. You know, we've got to generate good returns over 10 years, 20, 30, 40, 50. It's what matters to us. It's what matters to our investors. Uh, and I think that, um, so that real alignment of interest and ownership uh, stake uh, does give us this, this background mindset oriented towards longevity. And that then governs the strategies that we adopt, the processes we use, and the type of people that we bring into the business to work uh, work with us. There is there is a good example. Like just like this longevity is so important, right? Because many investors react to the market volatility and market noise. And there is a book written by you know a high caliber investor, more based on the U.S. market, and he did the analysis on S and P five hundred that if over the period of twenty years you missed or you were out of the market at least one day a month, your return would be approximately 1%. If you stayed consistently in the market for 20 years, your return would be approximately 7%. Yeah, look, we, we've been thinking hard about this, you know, reflecting on the 100 years, but uh, one, of the, one of the things, again, again, it's overlooked. You don't think about this unless you're looking at a long time frame. But, and we've had some investors there for 100 years or investor families, but... If your, your investment has durability uh, and lasts for 100 years, the investors had to make one correct investment decision and incurred one set of costs in setting that up. Now, if you, in contrast, if your fund's much less durable or you need to chop and change it more often, and say on average you only, your fund only lasted five years or you change your investment every, every five, you've incurred 20 times of selling costs, buying costs, taxation costs, research costs and time out of the market, which is what you're alluding to before. So multiplied 20 times over, it can actually trim a fair bit out of, out of investment value. So durability uh, of the structure itself definitely has uh, value. Mm, absolutely. And we'll come back to that, actually. That's a, that's a really good point, which we'll come back to towards the end. Andrew, we might switch gears and bring you into the, into the conversation here. Um, not many people maybe have heard you on the show. Uh, given this is your first appearance. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the business that you set up? And I'm also curious and hoping that you can explain, just to set the scene, what private debt is and the role that it plays in the market and portfolios. Sure. Thanks, Alan. Um, so my name is Andrew Lockhart. I uh, spent 26 years working for National Australia Bank. Uh, in 2013, Metrics launched its first fund. So we've now been operating for 10 years. Our role is to originate, to structure, to manage risk associated with directly lending to Australian and New Zealand-based companies. And so the market is predominantly a bank-dominated market, but there are some changes afoot. So if I think about the Australian market, as I've made comments today, most Australian companies are unrated. They don't have an S&P or a Moody's rating. Australia doesn't have a deep liquid corporate bond market of any size or scale. And so most borrowers are heavily reliant on banks for funding. Yet, unfortunately, as a result of the financial crisis and more recently the collapse of banks like um, SVB or Credit Suisse, it really forces the attention of the regulators to the risks associated with the banking sector. And uh, I believe that whenever you hear a, a regulator say that they want the banks to be unquestionably strong, it's code for more capital required to protect the depositors and so as a result of that, it becomes increasingly difficult for banks to generate the required return on shareholders' funds. And so they look to 
de-risk and reduce their assets off their balance sheet, which means that borrowers really need to find an alternative source of funding. And so I believe at Metrics, we provide a, value, a very valuable source of non-bank financing to companies to support their growth and their activities. So it's an important means to provide and generate economic activity as you provide credit to those companies. But equally, in our business, we would work with and we compete against the banks to provide funding. So often the larger facilities that we provide to larger corporates are provided by multiple lenders. It's not usually just one lender. So we work with the, with other lenders, banks, non-banks, to provide that financing to companies. In uh, And you have a myriad of funds that suit wholesale and there's a retail component as well. So people, anyone listening to this can go to the Metrics website and find out more information. Uh, how important is it when you construct these portfolios that you've got the, I guess, the breadth or the diversification across, I guess, all like businesses across markets, etc. It's critical. I, I think, unfortunately, I, I, have, I am of the view that industry risk is not the greatest risk that investors need to think about how they diversify. For us as a lender, it's very much around bottom-up credit fundamentals. What, who's the company we're lending to? What's the project they're undertaking? What's the cash flow that's going to be generated to service and repay the debt? So the biggest risk that I see that an investor is exposed to in direct lending strategies is the risk of credit loss in the event of a default. And so there's lots of ways in which you can, as a lender, take action to protect and preserve your capital and make sure that you're not incurring a loss. And as a non-bank lender, we have some flexibility that isn't available to the banks in terms of how you manage risk. And so I believe that you know the diversification is very important, but it's very important to limit the exposure to have to any one individual counterparty. So any one individual borrower needs to be a limited amount and investors gain the benefit. I believe that in private debt, it can play multiple roles in investor portfolios. So, you know, if you think about it through the capital structure, you can gain senior investment grade unsecured debt all the way through to mezzanine subordinated debt in the capital structure. Or you might even take provide debt and take warrants or options to give you some equity return uh, from providing the, the loan. And so as a result of that, it can play multiple roles in investor portfolios. But because debt isn't a homogenous asset and each individual company, their circumstances are different, the structure that you might put in place could be different. It's important to ensure that the investors that are investing in our funds have given you a clear mandate that says this is the risk and return that I expect from your lending activities. And that means that you can segment the risk as you originate transactions, you can provide investment returns for investors that are more defensive. You can provide returns for investors that are looking for a higher yield. Uh, and so it's important to have the appropriate structures to enable investors to determine what is the return objective, what's their risk tolerance, and then the various funds are really designed to give investors choice around liquidity options. And so if I think about the ASX listed funds, why they're so important is that it's giving investors the ability to buy and sell units on the stock exchange, giving them immediate liquidity in what is deemed to be a less liquid asset class being debt. Loans aren't traded over a Bloomberg screen. They're, you know, predominantly, you lend money to a company and you hold it until maturity. So you have to work those relationships with companies, manage the risk over that period of time. And often that doesn't meet the, the investment timeframe for certain investors. So I, I believe the ASX listed funds, giving investors the ability to buy and sell at, at whenever they choose is a, is a great feature of our funds. Uh, so it's interesting. Uh, we talk about this and uh, I gave you guys an introduction to the podcast. I know you've been on before, but uh, 
our discussion that we had, I think it was last year, on uh, senior secured loans was one of our most popular ever. And when you think about an investing podcast, it's, you think stocks, you think companies, you think growth, tech, these types of things would be really popular. But it was actually that conversation which was really interesting amongst the audience. So um, this is a, a, a frontier, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I might switch to you, Daniel. You've been on the show before. It was a fantastic conversation. We got an introduction to you, your backstory, and how you ended up where you are today. But the question that I have for, for you is: You laid out uh, with Wham Alternatives. You laid out, you know, the, the strategies that you're pursuing. Is, if I'm not mistaken, about five buckets, or how I think about it, maybe five buckets. Um, I guess which of those have surprised you most so far in 2023? Look, I think the private equity one. So if you refer to buckets as asset classes, right? Mm. Like private equity, real estate, infrastructure, real assets and private debt. Private equity one was probably the one where I didn't necessarily expect to be that active this year. I thought it would take time for the valuations to correct further. But what I saw basically even from the first quarter of this year, increasing M&A transactions, both in the smaller market when we talk about enterprise value, 50 million to 100 million, but then also 100 million to 300 million enterprise value. And the fact that the equity markets stayed quite volatile, it presented really attractive entry opportunity for private equity players. And so one of the deals, um, we'll, we'll be announcing it in this month's NTA, but one of the deals that was public to private, Slater and Gordon. And that's quite a specific turnaround transformation strategy. But to me, it shows there are really interesting opportunities within the listed equity market for private equity players because they do see it as a relatively attractive entry point into those businesses. Of course, the key would be to see what are the actual financial fundamentals or business fundamentals at each portfolio company level before those decisions are being made. It's got quite opportunistic like pockets of opportunities. So that's interesting. And that will stay as long as the equity markets, you know, stays quite nervous and volatile. Um, but then also the transactions within private equity healthcare, that was quite interesting. And I think it will continue this year. So quite um, a popular area because it, it is seen as a defensive sector. Um, we do see even like from the most recent uh, re recent budget announcement, there will be more support from the government in care and healthcare, so which is quite a broad area, but that does create opportunities. And then, of course, the focus on climate change means that renewable energy infrastructure will continue to stay in focus for investors. So, like, I think, you know, not no huge surprises, but I just didn't expect that will happen so quick in terms of creating this entry opportunity for the private equity guys. Mm. I remember I have a friend who launched a private equity fund. Um, I think it was the week before SVB's collapsed. Yeah. Um, and I think he's still raising so uh, it's a really interesting yeah. market and time to be in the market right now. Um, okay, so we've got, uh, we've just kind of like laid, set the scene for what we kind of think about and how we think about the world. But an open-ended question that I had for each of you was kind of just generally where you see pockets of opportunity in 2023, given the backdrop of 
persistent inflation. Um, and that has different implications across each of the worlds that you like are involved in. Um, interest rates, and these are just the top-down factors. We've obviously got bottom-up fundamentals uh, as well that you may think about. Maybe, Angus, to start with you, I, th- I feel like the conversation, and I could be putting words in your mouth, is almost like we're not necessarily interested in what's changing but what stays the same. But I'm curious how 2023 has fared for you and some of those opportunities that you may be seeing now as opposed to things that you may not have seen in the last couple of years. I, okay. I, th- I think first up, a, a defining characteristic of recent markets but also markets probably for uh, the rest of 23 is going to be the fact that the interest rate movements and expectations are a, a hugely dominant factor, uh, but they're also unpredictable, and that's because we're at this uh, this juncture where people are uncertain as to whether inflation's rising or falling, uh, and and how interest rates will react to that. So that's going to have the impact of flipping around stocks and sectors within the market, and I don't think it's certain as to where we're going to end exactly where which side of that equation will end up on. But what I can say is when it flips things around, opportunities emerge, okay? Uh, So depending on your view of where things are going longer term, it might create opportunities. Within that, though, I think, uh, and look, we are believers that inflation is likely or core inflation is likely to strengthen. I just think the whole translation process of rebalancing the economy requires higher wages, and that takes years to, to play out. So I think that's that's going to drive a level of inflation for future years. But in that higher inflation environment over the next decade than what we've had, quality is a really important uh, factor. So you want, uh, you want exposure to companies and businesses who have strength of industry posi- position and pricing power that enables them to maintain a margin in that time when uh, costs are going up. Okay, So I think that's... that's Probably the looking through the noise. That's the longer term opportunity. Mm. It's a uh, that quality focus and pricing power, passing on prices. These types of things are very, very important. I guess in, in most markets as well, right? Uh, Andrew, I might switch gears a bit and ask you how pers- persistent inflation or rates affects private debt, and in particular, I'm thinking about the risk return a spectrum, like how that. The dynamic plays into this market. It's interesting. I, I actually have the view that the biggest driver of returns for investors in private debt is the skill set of the manager to originate transactions, okay. recognizing where there are gaps in the availability of capital. So banks and others that have different risk appetite in terms of where they might be willing to lend because of you know the, the credit rating and therefore the capital that's required to be held against that particular asset, that creates um, inefficiencies in, uh, in markets. And so as a non-bank lender, what you're looking at is those inefficiencies, the sort of minor mini sort of withdrawal of credit from a particular industry or sector. And, and having the flexibility to appropriately structure transactions you can decide, okay, I can have a low-risk position and I'll, I'll a senior, senior secured, low-risk, low-leverage position against a company that's generating consistent, strong, stable cash flows. You can receive a lower return for that. But equally, there are companies that, um, you know, 
have have a very legitimate reason why they want might, may want to take on a, a a higher level of leverage to support their growth activities, the future growth that's coming from a t- particular project, but the risk appetite of lenders may not be there, and so you might have to structure that funding because of the gap of capital to provide funding, but then recognising that there's a gap in the availability of capital, ensuring you're rewarded for that. And you might do that by taking warrants or you take options over the equity or you might enter into a profit share with the company or you might even just be structurally or subordinated in the in the capital structure, providing mezzanine or subordinated debt. But importantly, when you lend, your, your focus is on, on the cash flow that's going to be generated What's the risk to those cash flows? What's the risk to the, the valuation of the company or the or the project that you're financing that you may hold security over? And so, in these environments where you know um, you know it, it, the economy is you know, due to be slowed, you know as as the Reserve Bank raises rates and governments take action to slow demand to contain inflationary pressure, you'd expect that most companies' you know, top line revenue will be challenged. Management teams will have to do a lot to, you know, to reduce their costs, as Angus said, to maintain appropriate margins. So it's about the quality of the management team that you're backing and supporting. But equally, the concern then becomes if interest rates rise, other other asset classes become attractive. Do you get some sort of rebasing in asset values and those sorts of things? So as a lender, you have to think about not only the cash flow, the management strategy, the people you're that that are driving the business, how capable and responsible they are, what the industry that you're servicing, what's the demand. What's the business model, but also what what is the risk to potential decline in asset values that may impact or potentially see equity not available for those companies? As a lender, one of the things you want to do is you want to be sure that a company has alternative sources of capital that are available to it, either through equity, uh, shareholders that are supportive, or alternative sources of debt financing. When when markets freeze or become more less liquid. That presents a risk for a lender in terms of what what are the options that are available to the company to manage their capital uh, requirements. It, it's like I, I invest in senior loans and then in private equity, so I like having this flexibility in terms of the capital structure, and I find it really interesting to observe when I talk to the investment teams who come from the private debt background. I call them like risk off because when I look at the investment papers. The focus is predominantly on risks. Like, what are the risks when we underwrite, right? Like, that's the big difference from private equity guys, where you look at their investments. A lot of focus is on growth. What are the growth, like the upside? Well, you look at the uh, at the downside. And I think when you said last year it was the most popular podcast, right? You think about this. That's like a safe haven to some extent in the current market environment. It's defensive. And it provides this protection against rising interest rates. I guess I've been around long enough to see some private equity uh, situations not play out the way they expect. So, yeah, but you know, this is where you bring the skill yeah, to but, assess but it. I guess you have to sort of, um, you know, sensibly assess the business model, the quality yeah. of management. Yeah. What's the What are the drivers of cash flow? Because, um, yeah, as a lender, you, you do want the company to succeed and do well. Yeah. But at the, at the same time, in prior vintages, Often, often private equity have been accused of, of manufacturing returns with financial engineering. Yeah, yeah. I think currently, um, post the GFC, I think most private equity firms 
people that we would deal with, um, more focused on the operational improvements management, that, yeah. and the management of that business to really drive and implement a management strategy yeah. to drive growth in earnings and to grow yeah. to generate value for shareholders. So I think you know, as a lender, you've just got to you know, I guess, work with quality management teams and people that can actually implement a, a, a sensible strategy and drive uh, the earnings of the company. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, we'll come close to time so I might just finish with one question and Danny you've already uh, had the privilege of facing this very difficult Done. question so I'll, I'll let the, the gentleman go here and, and close us out for this episode um, maybe Angus maybe I'll, I'll give it to you first the hard question and the question is uh, what's one thing that few people would agree with you on and this is in respect of investing, business. It could even be life and just things in general. What's something that you believe that few others would agree with you on? I'm going to give that to you about life. Okay, great. I start work at 6 a.m. and I don't think many people agree with it, but it's fantastic that they don't because there's no traffic. <laughs> that is actually a fantastic answer and it, it flies in multiple ways. That's great. Wonderful. Okay, so Andrew, we've got one more for you then. That's It's a difficult one. Um, and... That not many have an answer that's so succinct, and it often takes people quite I don't think a long time. Be better than Angus. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Do you start work at six a.m.? Uh, a bit earlier. Bit earlier. Okay. Um, but anything else to add? I just like Angus's answer. <laughs> Perfect response. Perfect response. Okay. Wonderful. I like that. Well, thank you so much, all three of you, for 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 joining me. I think. Not to age us, but I, I think we are close to a hundred years of investing experience between us. Um, obviously, we don't have the hundred-year track record that someone might have, but I really do appreciate it, Angus. Thank you for joining me and everyone here. A pleasure. And Dania, thank you for for thank joining you. me. And uh, Andrew, pleasure. Thanks, Owen. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.